Welcome to the first full episode of The Reconciliation Project. If you want to hear what this podcast series is all about, please go back and listen to the short episode zero intro podcast. One thing I didn't say in the intro is I created an email address, thereconciliationpodcast at gmail.com. So if you have personal stories of reconciliation, personal stories of hope that you want to share, send them in. I would love for anyone who listens to the podcast to email their thoughts or email in your own stories. If you're okay with it, I may share in a future episode. It's important to share our stories so that they can help inspire others. After my own faith experience described in the introduction, I began to wrestle with a true belief in God and what it meant. That experience forced me to truly accept the existence of God beyond superficial belief But for the listeners, what if you or someone close to you hasn't had an experience like that? How do you think about God? I'm not going to start with the Bible. If you don't come from a Jewish or Christian heritage, I don't think that quoting the Bible will mean much to you. So in trying to reconcile the idea that there is a God, where to start? The answer is love. Romantic love. The can't live without you, you complete me, intoxicating love. Almost everyone, regardless of your politics, your faith, or anything else, has fallen in love. As human beings, we share that experience. Starting from that common experience, I'm going to make the argument that the mechanics of romantic love, how our brain is wired to experience love, Love's very existence and commonality among all humans proves that there is a God. Yes, if you're an atheist or an agnostic, this episode is for you. How humans fall in love proves that there is a God. For the first part of today's episode, we are going to be drawing from the book Getting the Love You Want by Harville Hendricks and Helen Hunt, both PhDs in psychology. This book is about relationships and why they fail and how to heal them. This is a therapeutic book rooted in psychological research. Harville and Hunt describe your brain in two parts, what they call your old brain and your new brain. The old brain is your rapid response, immediate reaction, subconscious mind. Your new brain is your higher order critical thinking. More specifically, your old brain is your brain stem and your limbic system. In the first 10 pages of their book, They introduce the old brain as controlling breathing, heart rate, and other basic functions, and also being the source of long-term memory and strong emotion. What they call your new brain is your cerebral cortex, where higher-order thinking and reasoning take place. The second major source of material for this episode is The Other Half of Church by Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks. As a note, the author Michael Hendricks has no relation to Harville Hendricks, the author of Getting the Love You Want. The other half of church uses the term right brain for what Hendricks and Hunt call the old brain and left brain for what Hendricks and Hunt call the new brain. Here's how the other half of church defines right brain, and I'm quoting. The right side starts processing our surroundings and draws conclusions before the left side is even aware of what's happening. The book goes on. The right brain functions the right brain functions begin with our important relational attachments 
and are intended to help us be ourselves in relationships. Wilder and Hendricks specifically define the right brain as the source of our important relational attachments. Same thing as the old brain. So, two books with two different topics, The Psychology of Romantic Relationships and How the Christian Church Has Failed at Truly Transforming Its Members into the Image of Christ. They use different words, old brain and new brain, right brain and left brain, but they say the same thing. As a human being, you have an unconscious mind that takes in your surroundings and drives your emotions and reactions way more than you understand. You have an old brain with emotional coding from childhood. So what does it have to do with capital L love? How are we proving the existence of God? We'll start with getting the love you want, and for the rest of this podcast, we'll adopt their terms, old and new brain, even when talking about material from the other book, just for consistency. Getting the love you want is about a therapeutic approach to marriage and relationships called imago therapy. The authors chose imago because it is Latin for image. Why did they choose the Latin word for image? Because psychological research has proven deep inside your old brain, below your conscious thought, you've stored the experiences of your childhood, both good and bad. You've stored the interactions with your primary caretaker and relationships, parents, grandparents, siblings, and to quote from Getting the Love You Want, your brain didn't interpret, interpret this data. It simply etched them onto a template. So, based on your interaction with your primary caretakers, you have an image of love. You have a template of caretaking deep inside your brain. Your old brain has been wired, mostly, but not entirely, in your first four years of life. This image has both the positive and negative traits of your caretakers, but no matter how great your caretakers were, it is incomplete. Because they are human, they weren't perfect. Programmed in your brain, you now have a gap. A gap between this image of love and all the romantic ideals you may think you have about love. We've established early on that this image is within your old brain. Your old brain is the source of your fight-or-flight response. It is flooding your new brain with inputs and emotions. Unless you put a lot of conscious effort in, your old brain is really running the show during any highly emotional moments. So what does this have to do with the process of falling in love? Harville and Hendricks talk about love in stages around how people describe the process. The first stage is a statement many of us would make, I know we just met, but I feel like I've known you forever. This sentence or something similar is one of the first stages of romantic love. It's that we just went out for dinner but ended up talking for five hours type of statement. The person even though you haven't spent many literal hours with them, feel so familiar. You have an ease, a comfort. I hope those of you listening have felt that at some point in your life. In Getting the Love You Want, Harville and Hendricks call this the phenomenon of recognition. So what causes this phenomenon of recognition? The person you have this feeling with aligns with your imago. Whatever image you have in your old brain this person aligns with it, or at least mostly. That doesn't make sense. How can you spend one or two dates, or let's call it less than 10 hours, with someone and know that their personality characteristics are a mix of those of your caretakers from childhood? 
that mystery is the point. Your new brain, your conscious thought, can't possibly have taken in all of the relevant information about their personality and analyzed it. Love isn't a conscious, rational decision. Love is driven from the old brain. During what Harvon Hendricks called the attraction phase, the brain releases dopamine and norepinephrine. These two chemicals contribute to, and I'm quoting, a rosy outlook on life, a rapid pulse, increased energy, and a sense of heightened perception. How does your brain know to release those chemicals? What drives that? An imago recognition. After those first few dates, when you just want to be with your new relationship all the time, your brain also produces additional endorphins, which help increase your security and sense of comfort. Okay, all of this is interesting, but why does it matter? And aren't we supposed to be proving God exists? Yes, we are. And, I've, and I have to admit something. I've described the imago as having both positive and neg- negative characteristics of your childhood caretakers. And that's true. But they aren't evenly balanced. The imago actually skews towards the negative characteristics of your caretakers. This doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's true. Harville and Hendricks had couples compare personality traits of their partners with those of their caretakers, and the correlations with the negative personality traits were higher. Why? Because our old brain is not trying to perfectly balance your personality by thinking, I'm introverted, and it would be great to partner with an extrovert. It is trying to resurrect the past out of, and I quote, a compelling need to heal old childhood wounds. Later, Harvill and Hendricks state, we picked that partner to re-experience those old feelings so that we could heal them and the sadness and pain from the past. Okay, this may be a little theoretical here, so let me give you an example. For simplicity, I'm going to use a heterosexual couple, but the psychology of Imago applies to all relationships. This is a condensed version of an example from the book. To be clear, I'm not talking about anyone I know or my parents. This is an example from the book. So let's say the woman is named Pam. Pam's father had a steady job, keeps up the yard, keeps the cars clean, but he's emotionally insensitive. He does things like call her a crybaby from time to time, and there's one potent memory where he maybe threw her in her pool when she could barely doggy paddle to try and, quote, teach her to swim, end quote. Now, to Pam's mom, loving, attentive, but a little perfectionist, would be critical of Pam around her clothes, homework, that sort of thing. We're not talking physical abuse here, deep emotional abuse, uh, just an insensitive dad and an overly critical mom. So Pam is attracted to Peter. Peter is outgoing, sociable, fun to hang out with, reasonable guy. But during their marriage, he is also insensitive to Pam's needs. She would try and vent about work or other things, and he would basically tell her to stop complaining and do something about the problem. Peter wasn't in touch with his own uncomfortable feelings and would just always try to stay busy to mask his own unhappiness. In fact, that was one of the main reasons Peter is attracted to Pam. She was in touch with her emotions and helped Peter access his repressed emotions from childhood, where his feelings weren't 
acknowledged by his parents. See what's happening here? Pam's imago has an image of love where someone meets some basic material needs, keeps a job, keeps things somewhat clean, but is not emotionally supportive at all. And if a person is supportive, bringing in her mother here, that support comes laced with criticism. The loving support she didn't get was pure support. Peter's lack of support and criticism of her lack of specific action fits right in. Peter, on the other hand, doesn't handle emotions well because he wasn't allowed to have them growing up. And even though he criticizes Pam's emotions, just the exposure to them and being with her engages a long-repressed part of himself. Pam's motivation is to find someone who will heal her childhood, listen to her emotional needs, and offer unconditional support, not criticism or advice. Peter's motivation is to find someone who he can actually express his emotions around without getting told not to have feelings. Imago's attracting, drawing each other towards healing. Well, that just took the magic out of love, didn't it? My old brain picked my partner because they resembled some key negative traits of my caretakers? Yes, that was the process your old brain followed. But let me reframe it and try to put some magic back in. Without any conscious thought, your brain floods you with chemicals and you fall in love because deep within your mind you want to be healed. Your brain is literally wired to release dopamine and endorphins when it recognizes the imago match. This isn't conscious. There's no logical analysis. Without any effort, humans are designed to release chemicals into your body and fall in love. This is magical. It's magical because you fall in love because you know deep in your mind that your image of love is fractured and you need healing. Romantic love is about the restoration of that image. Love is about picking someone so that your image of love, your imago, which is imperfect and fractured, can be healed. Love is about healing. Love is about an unconscious desire to restore your sense of lost connection. Love is about, shall I dare say, a desire to return to the Garden of Eden. And this is where we introduce God, a creator. If you don't believe in God, then why do we fall in love this way? Why is love a homing beacon towards healing? There are creatures in the animal kingdom, such as penguins and swans, that mate for life. They choose a single partner. The idea that without God, humans might want to mate for life isn't out of the realm of possibility. Maybe love would be our way of mating for life. That process falls apart, as we'll discuss later. The chemicals that make us fall in love fade over time. The process of falling in love isn't, chemically speaking, a permanent one. So why this? Why would humans have a neurological structure that not only creates what we call love through the release of chemicals, but bases that process on a desire to heal emotional wounds from our own childhood? What evolutionary advantage would that provide? The only somewhat rational answer is that those caretakers kept us alive. In all their imperfections, they kept us alive. So from an evolutionary perspective, if we find someone just like them, we will be kept alive. 
upon first glance, that could make sense, but it doesn't hold up under the question of why are the negative aspects of our caretakers the ones that attract us? If we absorb the images of our caretakers as a survival mechanism, wouldn't we be drawn to the positive aspects of them? Or at least be neutral? We fall in love to try and heal the holes in our psyche from childhood. We fall in love to become more complete as a person. There is no evolutionary explanation for this. Love was created because it gives us a sense, a glimpse into what God's love for us is like. It's imperfect. We're imperfect, but it's a window. That feeling that you have early in a relationship, when you feel alive, you feel connected, that's a window into life in the Garden of Eden. Or if you have other religious beliefs, however you would describe a paradise humans can live in. So, take a break here. Bathroom, refill the coffee. We're going to switch books to the other half of church and build on this. The reason is that the specific of structure, the specific structure of love, how it works in the brain chemically, also aligns with the steps of character formation Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks talk about. The key takeaway is that the way love works is also constructed to help you change, to help you grow, to help you become a better, fuller person in relationship. The sentiment, my partner brings out the best in me, that's literally, psychologically true. We'll dive into that into the second part of the episode. Before we dive into Hendricks and Wilder, we need to build a bridge from Harville and Hendricks. Remember, the, that book is about a counseling strategy for couples. It's about helping couples improve their relationships. I described earlier about falling in love out of an old brain-driven desire for healing and restoring the fractured imago we have from our caretakers. But remember, as much as your partner aligns with your imago, you align with their imago. You're both human. Relationships fail because over time, when the chemicals fade, it becomes clear that being in a relationship with the other person hasn't fully restored that sense of connection you long for. You haven't fully returned to the Garden of Eden. When that happens, both of you must be engaged and consciously work to handle your own disappointment. If one or both of you aren't, the relationship will probably fail. If either of you still cling to the idea that it's your partner's fault, that they haven't fulfilled the sky-high expectations of your old brain, the relationship will probably fail. So, what now? The answer is character formation or change. How do you change someone's character? How do people have go through a process of character formation? We're talking about change, real lasting change. Relationships will thrive if there's progress. If both people mature and grow... You don't have to arrive in the Garden of Eden as long as you feel like you're making progress towards it together. That's where The Other Half of Church by Michael Hendricks and Jim Wilder comes in. 
this book isn't about romantic love, but it is about how people change. It's written from the perspective of the Christian church and how it has failed to truly help its members go through spiritual formation and become more like the image of Christ. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the book is asking the question, why doesn't going to church on Sunday and being in a small community group change people? Why aren't Christians, on the whole, nicer, more compassionate, kinder than everyone else? That's the way to think about this book for non-believers. Hendricks and Wilder use the terms right brain and left brain, as I said earlier, but we'll stick with old brain and new brain. So uh, Hendricks and Wilder state that true character formation, true growth and change happens in relationships. They frame it through a Christian community, but the principles apply directly to a romantic partnership. They lay out the steps for building that community, for building that romantic partnership that lead to true and lasting change. First, we need to define the way they define change, or we need to understand the way they define change, and I'm quoting here. Much of what we call discipleship or spiritual formation is an effort to change our spontaneous reaction to life situations and conform them to the image of Christ. Said another way, true change means that we are slower to anger. True change means that we are more compassionate in the moment. True change means that the old brain is no longer in in control. True true change means that eventually our brain is rewired. That is exactly what Harville and Hendricks try to get couples to work together to achieve. Being in a relationship where the old brain and our childhood wounds are no longer in control, where the new brain, which is the source of empathy and compassion, is in control. So now I'm going to paraphrase uh, Michael and Hendricks slightly. An incomplete view of change would conclude that we need to choose to become better, and this will prove our love for our partners. This is exactly backwards. Our brains are designed to change us through love. If we lack the old brain relational development, the spiritual disciplines will be less effective. What they are saying is that improving our romantic relationship isn't just about thinking, I need to get angry less, or... I need to be more patient with my partner and then doing it. But it isn't about abstractly choosing to become better. If we are still stuck in our old brain, no amount of logical thought and human willpower will do. That's why going to church and listening to a sermon doesn't fundamentally change you immediately. And if that's all you do, it doesn't work. That's the point of their book. It's not about just deciding to be better. Michael and Hendricks are saying what Harville and Hendricks are saying. We must heal the wounds embedded in our old brain for change to take root. So how do we heal our old brain? How do we change? The first step is relational joy. Again, quoting the other half of church. As we go through our day, our old brains are scanning our surroundings, looking for people who are happy to be with us. And our brain looks specifically to the face of another to find joy, and this fills up our emotional gas tank. So our brains are constantly looking around to the faces of others for joy, relational joy. I'm happy to be here with you, is the foundation of any community that can drive character change. In a group of people, this is plays out in platonic ways. Firm handshake, big smile, great to see you, 
a welcoming environment to meet in. Relational joy. The foundation of change. So think about falling in love. What is the biggest emotion of first falling in love? Joy. Falling in love is a chemically induced, supercharged, peak intensity experience of happy to be with you. You aren't just happy to be with someone. You want to be with them every moment. You want to be around them all the time. You don't just smile because you're supposed to. Your face lights up when you see them. Falling in love automatically without any effort overwhelmingly hits the first step to change out of the park. Falling in love is an upward spiral of joy to be with one another. Easy. Step one on the path to change. Check. What's step two? Attachment. The other half of church talks about attachment by using the Hebrew term hesed. Hesed can be translated enduring covenant love. Hesed is a kind of as a kind and loyal care for the well-being of another. Hesed is the ideal relationship commitment. That book explains infant brains develop identity through joyful interactions, usually with the mother and father. The joyful faces of the parents are combined with the baby's growing sense of self to form a triad of joyful interactions. In this ideal environment, joy becomes the baby's strength, and this lays a foundation for a lifelong joyful identity. Notice how the attachment that has said the identity is built on joy. Relational joy, formed in childhood, mostly before the age of four, then has said. Relational joy is another way of talking about a component of the image of your imago, your image of love. Wilder and Hendricks have the same thoughts as Harville and Hendricks of childhood and what that means, and they wonder, and I'm quoting again, what happens when a baby does not have this joyful triangle? If the parent's faces are fearful during this stage of the baby's growth, or if the parents are detached, the baby's identity does not develop from a foundation of joy and love. Same thing as Harville and Hendricks. What happens when you're young? It shakes the foundation of your relational joy. Because our caretakers are imperfect, we develop a fractured imago, an incomplete picture of love. Our identity suffers. Our attachment mechanisms, has said, step two, are distorted. Psychologists have defined four major attachment styles that the other half of church doesn't dive into. They are ambivalent attachment, avoidant attachment, disorganized attachment, and secure attachment. To oversimplify, those categories are different ways of describing how your imago is fractured. As you can guess, secure attachment is ideal, but secure attachment doesn't mean perfection. Secure attachment just means that you have the strength to go through conflict, to engage with your romantic partner, to discuss and resolve conflict in a somewhat healthy manner. Secure attachment doesn't mean perfect imago, but it does imply that, as the other half church puts it, you have a strong enough foundation of relational joy that you can constructively engage in healing. So, to drive change... We need to build on relational joy and develop secure attachment. We need hesed. 
whatever you may think of the institution of marriage, it is an outward covenantal commitment. It is literally designed to create has said. Even if you don't get married, having that long-term commitment is the second step to change. Once you're in a Hesed relationship, you can see how your partner acts on a deeper level. Michael and Hendricks say, Our old brain operates in the realm of relationships. Our relation experience and memories mold our character. When we see a more mature person handling a difficult situation, that image gets processed into our relational brain. Our old brain absorbs this image and goes to work on our character. All of this happens faster than conscious thought. In a Hesed relationship, you truly see your partner's strengths, and they start to lift you up. You see them handle situations maturely where you may struggle and vice versa. You're able to dialogue with your partner about situations where one of you may not act in the most mature manner. Getting the Love You Want talks about what they call the space between, where each person in a relationship can recognize the other person for who they truly are, have empathy, and dialogue can happen. They also That book also uses the term conscious partnership, and how in the therapeutic process they ask couples to sign commitments saying they won't break up with or divorce their partner for at least three months while they start the therapeutic process. Commitment has said, three months, I won't break up with you. If you're in therapy, sometimes that's, that's the minimum commitment. Three months, 90 days. So romantic love matches step for step the first two parts of Michael and Hendrick's description of how you change. Relational joy has said. The third part is around defining common values. Now, this book was written in a different context, so they talk about creating a group identity. The group identity function as, functions as the guardrails for our actions and helps people see when their actions aren't aligned with their, aligned with their ideals. In the other half of church, they write, my own willpower will not be sufficient f- to prevent me from acting in non-Christian ways. And we define our character as our embedded automatic response to our relational environment, our instantaneous behavior that flows naturally from our heart. What they are saying is without healing your old brain, our new brain can't fundamentally change us. What they call willpower is the cerebral cortex and the idea that we can monitor and analyze and restrict all of the impulses coming from our old brain. That's psychologically impossible. So we must heal our old brain. To do that, we need a set of guardrails that can show us when our old brain has run us off course. Those guardrails come from a common set of values. Michael and Hendricks base those values on the character of Jesus. They say, Our instantaneous reactions to life circumstances, some of which result in non-Christian behavior, can be transformed by having a joyful Hesed community that has a well-developed group identity based on the character of Jesus. So joy, Hesed, and and then group identity lead to change. They lead to a healing of an old brain. The third step, the group identity, is where the one-to-one correlation between the books breaks down a little bit because they're different topics and different perspectives. Michael and Hendricks are writing about Christian communities, not romantic relationships. How they discuss using group identity to communicate with another member of the community differs from Harville and Hendricks, but 
Harville and Hendricks have a section on Imago Dialogue, and it discusses how to talk about difficult issues with, with your partner. The Imago Dialogue focuses on understanding your partner by mirroring their words back to them, validating their feelings, and finding empathy. The key commonality is that both books offer a specific framework for how to dialogue with someone else, whether a community member or your spouse. And in that dialogue, empathize with them. In the Michael and Hendricks world, you're empathizing with them and how difficult the situation must have been and reminding them that underneath a poor decision is a higher self defined by the group values. Harville and Hendricks point you to empathy to draw you closer to your partner, which critically unlocks your highest self. When you feel close with your significant other, you are unlocking your highest self, your most empathetic, most kind, and most relational self. So, to recap, romantic love has three main stages. The initial rush of joyful love, the commitment phase that may or may not include the tradition of marriage, and the longer-term relationship that evolves into a conscious partnership with a space between where two people can dialogue around challenges. And these three stages match up with the stages of character formation, relational joy, has said, and dialogue around a group identity. Romantic love is designed to help you change. It is literally designed to help you become your best self. Going back to the main point, there's no evolutionary reason for this. There's no scientific justification for why romantic love would work this way. Not only does romantic love lack any evolutionary reason and prove that there is a God, the implication is that there's a higher self, a better version of yourself that not only exists, but that progress toward becoming that person can be obtained through a committed romantic relationship. Christians believe that we are created in the image of God. Romantic love helps us move towards becoming that image, both individually and together. For Christians listening, this should all make total sense. John literally writes that God is love. I could quote lots of verses, but this isn't a sermon. For those of you who aren't Christian, just know that the God of the Bible is love. The fact that an unexplainable gap in evolution would be centered around romantic love fits perfectly with Scripture. The mechanism of falling in love proves that God exists and the fact that falling in love and long-term relationships are neurologically designed to make us change implies that there must be something higher, there must be something greater. If you don't believe that humans are created in the image of God, some kind of God, not even worrying about the character or the details, just God, some kind of greater God, then what is the greater image we are called to? What is love trying to change us into? Why are kindness, compassion, and empathy the end goal? Ruthless rationalism and the desire to hoard resources may be how some people act. But does seeing the world that way not give you a moment of cognitive dissonance? If there was no higher self, no higher image to pursue, why would you have that moment of hesitation? Why would ruthless rationalism and hoarding of resources cause that hesitation if there wasn't something greater? 
there is a God. You feel the call to something higher than your own flesh and bones. What does it all mean? We'll start tackling that question in episode two of The Reconciliation Project. Thank you for listening to The Reconciliation Project. If you like the show, please go ahead and hit subscribe. This is a passion project for me, so we won't have any regular episode release schedule. I will try and release things at least quarterly, but I have a wife and two kids and work and all of the normal things that keep people busy in this life. So there will not be any regular releases. I may end up releasing batches of episodes when I feel like I've covered a topic. So if you if you like the show, please hit subscribe so that when the new episodes do drop, you'll get notified in your feed and you can enjoy more of the Reconciliation Project.